We're going to be tonight in Galatians chapter 4. We um, have been working on in the evenings through Galatians, uh, calling this series Grace. God's grace is more radical than you think. Um, The letter to Galatians is a small letter in the New Testament. And um, on first glance, it might not seem that life-changing, but but my argument about Galatians is it's kind of like a stick of dynamite. Um, It's small, but yet you light that thing up. Just right, and place it just right in your heart, and it will really change you. Uh, Paul's main point in Galatians, as we've seen, is that you, thank you, that you do not have a relationship with God based on what you do, whether what you did or what you one day will do or what you are doing right now. The only way you can have a right relationship with God is because of what Jesus does. And since that's true, it can only be received by faith. Um, Think about this. If you ask your son or daughter or grandson or daughter or at work you ask your employee or someone who works under you to do a job, but then after they're done, you go back behind them and try to do it again. Are you accepting their work or rejecting their work by going back and doing it again? Which one? Rejecting, right? We'll start with an easy question tonight. Yeah, it's rejecting their work. Uh, Even if maybe you said, well, I'm not... I'm not undoing what they did. I'm just adding to what they did. Even then, if you're going back behind them to add what they did, you're saying kind of by what you're doing that their work was not what? Good enough. Good enough. Paul takes this very seriously when it comes to the work of Jesus. These Christians in Galatia who had come from a pagan background, they had just now become Christians, they were being tempted to go back behind Jesus and redo his work. Maybe not to undo what he did, but to add to it, to add some more things that maybe they thought were missing. And then they were getting these hints about what was missing from these Jewish background false teachers who were coming in. And Paul says, this is a big deal. If you are saying, even subtly in your life, that Jesus' work's not good enough, you're saying something radically offensive to God. You can't do that. Uh, When it comes to Jesus' work, it's either all or nothing. Uh, Either he's all of your Savior, 100%. Or he's none of your Savior. Zero percent. You can't do like a Jesus 75 percent, me 30, Jesus 50, me 50. Even Jesus 99, me 1. That's the way Paul thinks about it. And so in the verses that I read to you there in chapter 4, did you notice? I'm perplexed by you, he says, because I I fear that I've wasted my time talking to you. (laughs) Isn't that harsh? Yeah, kind of harsh. But do you see his heart behind it? Because what does he say? I mean, look, look at where it says that there. That, that was in verse, um, somebody help me. What, what verse was that in? Was it 18? 11? Was it 11? Mm-hmm. Is that, is that, yeah, it's 11. Sorry. For some reason, I turned to Ephesians to Galatians, so I had a moment there where I couldn't find what I was doing. Uh, Yeah, verse 11, I fear that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. But look right around that area. What is it that he's so afraid of? Is Paul afraid that he's wasted his efforts because it's going to make him look bad? Why is he afraid that it, it might be that he's wasted his efforts as a pastor if they're going back behind Jesus trying to do his work for him? 
Because they're going to be, it's because of them. It's because of all the, the glory of Christ. I mean, that's the first thing, because it's dishonoring to Jesus. But secondly to that, it's, it actually enslaves us when we try to go behind Jesus and add a little works to faith. See, faith and works don't mix. Law and grace can't. They have to be put in the right order. And so tonight, uh, remember where we ended last time. This is why I passed out our discussion questions first. And attached to it is a cool little article that we're going to look a little bit at tonight. But I wanted to give you the whole thing so you could go and read it all for yourself. That article comes from uh, Tim Keller's study guide on the book of Galatians, which is really a fantastic uh, study guide on, Gal- on Galatians. Uh, last time we ended, remember, with that first question on the study guide. What do you think it looks like to have a gospel culture in a church? And how does that come about? Remember when I asked you that question? And I wanted you to go away and think about it? Y'all remember, right? <laughs> you don't. You don't. It's been two weeks. Yeah, it's been two weeks. So you might not remember. Well, what Paul's saying here in uh, Galatians 4 is that, yeah, the gospel is not just an idea. If it's just an idea, you don't really believe it. If you really believe it, it's more than an idea. And it's, it's something that actually begins to change you. What, what, an individual who has the TNT of the gospel go off in their lives, and a, and a church who has the TNT of the gospel go off in their lives, is going to have their culture together reshaped by it in a radical way. Uh, and so tonight, I want to talk to you. What is a gospel culture? How does it come about uh, Galatians 4 is a great guide to it uh, in two ways. Okay, two things I want to say tonight. First of all, I want to show you the basis of the gospel life. And second, I want to show you the characteristics of the gospel life or gospel culture. I'm using those things in the same way. Everybody good? Everybody understand where we're going? Uh, I'll be referring to this throughout, and we're going to kind of discuss throughout. So keep this out alongside the Bible tonight. A little bit different format than we've done before. All right, so first of all, uh, in the first verses, Paul's describing the basis of the gospel life or a living according to a gospel culture. And here is how to put it in a nutshell. Adoption. Adoption. Um, you know, you might say the crowning um, blessing of the gospel is to be adopted into the family of God. And that's the way Paul would say it. There's no, no higher blessing than that. Uh, he says at the end of chapter 3, if you'll look in your Bible, Galatians 3, he says in verse 26, you're looking at it, in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. All of you through faith are children of God. For you all who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's no Jew or Greek. There's neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. Those things don't make any difference when it comes to adoption. If you belong to Christ, you're one in Christ, and you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You're a son of God. Now, it's interesting that he uses that terminology, neither male nor female, slave or free. Uh, in the Roman world, it was sons, not daughters, who, had, who inherited of course, we've got beef with that today, but back then they hadn't thought of that beef yet, or at least a lot of people hadn't had the courage enough to talk about their beef with that. And so sons inherited. And yet Paul says here, even the women who believe in Jesus are sons. So it's not, he's not being like a sexist there. He's actually being pro-men and women in saying that everybody, even if you're a slave in this world, he says, 
whether you're a Jew or a Greek, man or a woman. If you believe in Christ, you're a son. You're a full heir to all the blessings that God gives. Uh, I want you to look at this uh, study guide from Tim Keller, the first page. And I am going to read you that quote there at the top by J.I. Packer. Or better yet, let me have one of you read it. Clint, will you read J.I. Packer's quote there? If you want. If you want, yes, so well, it starts. That's a powerful quote, isn't it? Did you digest all of that? There's a lot said there. Packer packs words in. <laughs> um, that's a joke. He packs the words in. <laughs> That's why his name is Packer. Y'all alive still with me? Y- y'all good? Uh, it's saying basically the very summary of Christianity is, is sonship. It's adoption. And no matter who you are, uh, even if you've had a bad experience with, your, with a father on earth, which is quite common, and it does, I think, initially you know, harm people's ability to relate to God, yet he's saying it's not something that can't be overcome. Uh, even if it's by negative contrast. God is everything my father wasn't, somebody might say. That's a wonderful place to come to, to understand that God in heaven is not just a slave driver. He's not just a king who commands, but he's a father who adopts, loves, brings us in, and gives us all the various things that that we need. In fact, Packer says, if you want to judge how, how well a person understands Christ, ask him how much he makes of God being his father. Or her. Ask her how much she makes of God being her father. Think about that. How much do you make of God being your heavenly father in Christ? How often do you think about that? How much of that idea shapes the way you approach God or the way you approach other people? Paul goes on to say, actually, a gospel culture comes from that directly. Gospel life comes out of that. Let me give you an example. If you think um, God is a slave driver and you're his slave, how are you going to act towards God and other people? What do you think? Throw out some descriptions. Resentful. Rebellious, right? Ungrateful. Think about the story of the prodigal son. Think about the older brother, right? I did all these things for you, Father, and you never even killed a goat for me and my friends. And here you are killing the fattened calf for my crazy, wild-living brother, right? That's what happens when we begin to look at God as a slave driver and we think of ourselves as slaves. It, it breeds, I mean, it's going to either breed either pride or despair, right? Pride, you know, is going to come from me thinking I, I am the best slave in the room, and I'm, be- I'm certainly a better slave than Clint or Tim or, you know, and so there's just going to be this swollen pride in me or, or in you. Or there's going to be despair. I can never be a good enough slave. I can never quite measure up to God's standards as master. But then flip that around. If someone believes they're a son, how are they going to act to God and other people? Describe that. <laughs> yeah, kids do nothing. Yeah, kids do nothing if they don't take advantage of the generosity of their parents. And, 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 you know, we laugh about that, but isn't that actually a beautiful privilege that we have as Christians? 
to, to in a sense, take advantage, you know, not in a devious way, but to, to fully expect confidently that God's going to come through and going to love me and back, and back me up. Not back me up for everything I want to do, but he's going to back me up for everything that's truly good for me, right? Because he's a good father. That's good. What else? Admiration. Admiration, yeah. That's right. Instead of bitterness, rebellion, there's just, wow. You know, how much does wow come up in your prayers? Does it ever? Wow. That's what comes from knowing, man, that God, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, is my Father. He loves me. How about gratitude? Versus ingratitude and a demanding spirit. Again, the two, difference between the two brothers, you know, the older son... How dare you, Father, not give me what I want because I've served you? Versus the other son who was like, Father, I've messed everything up. I don't, I'm not even deserve to be your servant. It's a big difference, isn't it? This is why Paul is so fired up with these people about them trying to then go behind Jesus and redo his work. Because he knows that being enslaved means not being able to live with God and for God. It means being, being bitter, angry, self-righteous. Towards God. We haven't even gotten into what it means to relate to each other when we have the self-righteous heart versus the gospel-honoring heart. You see, there's a huge difference here. In helping them understand that, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul identifies himself alongside the Galatians. And this is an amazing thing because, you see, Paul's upbringing was so much better than their upbringing. Paul was a Jew, raised as a Jew. He um, you know, learned from rabbis. He learned the Bible. He knew the Bible very, very well. How did the Galatian pagans grow up? What do you think? I mean, you might not know exactly, but what are some ideas you have about how they grew up? Chasing every witch god, right? It doesn't matter what, you know, Zeus and Hermes and, you know, going back and forth to this temple, that temple, this goddess, this god trying to appease this person so that it will rain, this other God so that they'll, their finances will get, become better, this God so that the crops will come through. I mean, it was just this endless round, season by season, of trying to appease somebody with their works. And listen, Paul says, even though I was a Jewish boy, a good Jewish boy, who was raised as a Jew, because of the way my heart was, I was really no better than you, pagan boy and pagan girl. I, too, was a slave. Even though I knew God's word, I knew the Old Testament, I still approached it as if it were based on works. And so, therefore, I was really no much better than you were. And so, guess what? Both of us together get to come to Christ and have our lives transformed. Isn't that amazing? Uh, it seemed, I mean, this is a very un-rabbi thing to do, by the way. Paul was a rabbi, and so rabbis just don't admit that they're not privileged over Gentiles. This is not something that they do. But you see, Paul's heart's been changed by grace, radical grace. And so he says, look, look at what it said. Don't take my word for it. I am saying, verse 1, that as long as an heir is under age, he's no different from a slave. Us Jews in the Old Testament period, a lot of times we were no different than y'all were as pagans because even though we own the whole estate, God made us subject, verse 2, to guardians and trustees until the time set by the Father. So that when underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. In other words, God, 
had given them a law that was filled with dates and times and seasons and sacrifices and all these things they had to do to keep their relationship with God going. And because Paul and so many of the others thought that that meant they were being made right with God by what they did, they were in no better position than the pagans were. An amazing, you know, admission from Paul, an amazing confession. Zeus worshiper and me amounted to just about the same thing because both of us were mistaken in that we believed we could be right with God by works. But, he says, look at verse 4, when God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, whether they're pagans or whether they're Jews, so that we might receive adoption to sonship. Wow. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. God did what only he could do to break the slavery chain, to break the slavery cycle for both Jews and Gentiles. You all understand what, what he's saying here? It's a little bit complex. I understand that. But if you, can, if you understand it, I think it could help you understand a lot about Christian living. Let's put it in today's terms. A person who is raised outside of the church is no worse than someone raised in it if the person raised in it thinks that it's all about their performance. If we could say it that way, that might help it pop a little bit better. I know some of y'all were raised in the church. Some of y'all weren't. I, for the most part, was from, you know, about age six up in the church. So I think I would claim that as being raised in the church. And yet, don't, don't you know that many people who are trained in the Bible in churches still didn't really truly get the idea that God embraces us by grace alone and forgives all our sins only because of Christ, not because of us. And we can never pay him back for it. Most of the time, people sitting in church, or not most of the time, but a lot of times, people sitting in church actually still think that there's some kind of like bartering going on with God. Paul says that person is no better than the person who ain't never been in church a day in their life. Both of them equally need Jesus. Do you see how Galatians is like a stick of TNT? That if you set it off in the middle of church, <laughs> it can blow up and cause people to get either offended. What do you mean? I've been here my whole life. I bought this pew. <laughs> or, you know, or, you know, I bought the stained glass. Or, what, you know, how people can be with religious things in church. For Paul to look at them and say, yeah, it doesn't really matter whether you bought the pew or not. If you have not put your whole trust in Jesus and his work, if you're still trying to go along after Jesus and add to it or redo it, you don't know the first thing about the family of God. You're a stranger to God's family. But good news, you can come in through the redeeming work of the Son and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into your heart. That is the basis of gospel life right there. Um, it, it is for religious people and non-religious people. Everybody needs it. Any questions or thoughts about that before we look at what the characteristics of the new life are in the rest of the chapter? Thoughts? Love to hear them. How are you defining your 
just anybody who, um, yeah, anybody who makes it a point to do any religious thing, whether it's, yeah, a regular church attender, a regular prayer, Bible reader. Lots of people are religious. I would say many people are religious. Even people who aren't in church, many of them have a religious thought or practice. Um, religion in itself is not bad. I'm not trying to say that, but I am saying that religion that is works-based is very bad. And that can be found just as much in the church as it can be found outside of it. Um, kind of like we said when we looked at Galatians 3, I mean, Paul is essentially saying a Jew who believed that he's saved by works may as well have been a pagan. And we could say today, a Christian who believes he's saved by works may as well be a Muslim or a Buddhist. Or I mean, it doesn't make any difference. The defining thing of Christ is grace and the acceptance of God based on what Jesus did, not what we do. That's the dynamite that blows up and changes people's lives. Uh, religion can change people's lives, religion by itself, but it tends to only change external things. You know, it can make people nicer. It can make them more respectable. That's not bad. I mean, don't we need some nicer, more respectable people in the world? <laughs> That's not a bad goal, I mean, given where we are in society today, but it's not, uh, it's not quite what the Bible means by sanctification, which is inside and out you change. Like your whole life changes. You want different things rather than just doing different things. You know, it's a big difference. And I think that thing, where you want different things, can only come by encountering a God of grace in an adoption relationship. Makes sense? Now, any other thoughts before I move on? Because I want to... Yes, Clint? I, just, I just can't get away from how important it is. Uh, they're drifting away because they really don't understand what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Trust. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's perfectly said, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying, or what Paul's saying. Excuse me. Um, although Jesus would back Paul up. Uh, in like for example, in verse eight or verse nine, I'm sorry. Look at how he describes the pagans. Now that you know God, see, this is what Clint's saying, right? They didn't know God before. Now, now you know God, but listen to what he says. Or rather, are known by God now. Why do you think he does that? Now you know God, or actually a better way to say it is God now knows you. It's really important, right? Yeah, so he's emphasizing the personal nature on both sides here. Uh, it's not simply about like doing certain things and not doing other things. I mean, that's good, but what's really at the heart of it is, do you know God and does he know you? That's the heart of it. And, and that comes as a gift of grace. Uh, in, in Romans 10, if you want another verse where Paul describes this, he says, man, my heart is broken over the Israelites, my fellow Jews. Why is my heart broken? Because I want them to be saved. And somebody says, what do you mean, Paul? They're children of Abraham. How can you say they're not saved? He says, because they pursued the Old Testament law as if it were based on works rather than faith. 
That's, that's what we're talking about tonight. He, he understood what he had gotten wrong, and he understood what many of his brothers and sisters had gotten wrong, and I believe what many of us sometimes get wrong, and myself included. Um, works righteousness is your native language. Go ahead and take that and put that on for size, right? Try to see if that fits. It fits me that works righteousness is my native language. I like to earn what I get one way or the other. It just makes me feel good. That's human nature. What Jesus is actually telling us is to lay aside that human nature because it's broken and to put on Christ in its place. It's a radical thing. And so, second, tonight, I want to look at the characteristics of the new life. So if it's based in adoption and this radical understanding that I'm adopted by Christ and not by myself, how does it change everything about us? And I want to show you in verses 8 through the rest of the chapter how Paul kind of systematically marches through different areas of life. Uh, First of all, I'll just take these in order. First of all, he tells us it gives us a new way of relating to God. It changes the way people relate to God. Uh, Look here at verses 8 through 11. Uh, Tim, will you read those verses out for us again? Good. So what's the new relationship that they are able to have now versus what they're trying to go back to? Well, we already said what the new relationship is, right? You know God because God knows you. Personal. God knows me. I know him. I know that God watches me. You know, his eyes on the sparrow and his eyes on me. That, that whole idea. He, he, he counts every hair of my head. He, you know, not a sparrow can fall to the ground without him and my life is in his hands too. That's a beautiful relationship. But what is it they're tempted to go back to? This very mechanical, almost like Coke machine style relationship where they do a certain thing, such as observe special days, months, seasons, years, which is what paganism is all about, right? In fact, if you look at all world religions, that's what most they all are about. Uh, Tapping into the rhythms of nature and trying to flow with those rhythms and get power out of those rhythms and meet the gods on the basis of those rhythms. Uh, He's saying you can't go back to doing that as a Christian. You can't get into astrology now that you're a Christian. You can't get back into, you know, um, keeping certain festivals as if they made God come down and make it rain. Because if you do that, basically you're you're selling away the whole farm, which is I'm in a love relationship with God that will never end. He's my father, I'm his son. Does that make sense? And in fact, even the Jews had something like this because so much of the Old Testament law was based on seasons, months, days, and years. It's almost like God looked at Israel and said, you know, the temptation for them to do the pagan thing is going to be so strong. Until Jesus comes, I've got to give them my own calendar to follow so that they'll not be distracted by the pagan calendars. And I'm going to give them a new way of understanding the calendar with Passover and tabernacles and all the rest. Uh, Even that, Paul says, you shouldn't go back to Because even that was just training wheels for the Israelites before Jesus came. Now you have this fully free relationship where you really don't need to have these kinds of nature observances, seasonal observances, sacrificial observances. You can just know God. You can open your mouth and talk to God and God is there to listen. You can open the Bible and the Spirit comes and He's there to speak. Wow. Again, wow. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, 
the Galatians uh, were especially known for their strength of um, religion in a, in a pagan way before they became Christians. I think I told you at the beginning, the word Galatian comes from the same word as Gaelic. Because in that part of the world, Gaelic people lived back then. And you might know a little bit about Gaelic people or Celtic people. That their religion prior to the coming of Christ was very kind of nature, outdoorsy, all based on the moon and the stars and all the movements of astrology and all that kind of... They were, they were known around the world for that kind of thing, magical practices based on all that. And so you can imagine when the Jewish teachers came and said, oh, guess what? God has endorsed seasons and months and years. Look at the Bible. They've, they're automatically getting back into their old way, thinking that God can be manipulated by rain dances and harvest festivals and, and the like. But he can't and he won't because God's a father. Got it? Second way, he says, there in verse 12 through, or actually, I've kind of already said the second way because it's there in verse 10. It's actually a whole new relationship to nature, to creation. Um, before creation was this sort of semi-divine thing to the pagans that you could tap into and practice magic with. But he's saying here that's not the case. We can move past that one. The third one there in verses 12 to 16 is a new way of relating to others. Uh, Ryan, do you, have your, do you have a Bible with you where you could read 12 through 16? Thank you. Good. What's he saying there? He's saying when he first came, I'm going to move down here because these lights are making where I can't see you guys. I still can't see you guys, but okay. The time change makes it darker out there, so it makes it harder to see y'all. Um, <clears throat> he's saying that when he first came to Galatia, uh, Paul had to spend an extra amount of time there because he had some kind of physical problem. Uh, a lot of people think it, Paul had always had a lot of problems with his eyes, his eyesight. Uh, more than likely, it was because he got stoned more than once. And it probably crushed you know, a lot of the things in his head that uh, were related to his eye sockets and stuff like that. And so for some reason, he had some kind of ailment that made him have to stay a long time in Galatia. But that opened up an opportunity for him to spend a whole season with them preaching. And a lot of times, Paul would plant a church and move on and plant a church and move on. This time, he had to stay for a while. And he said when he did, they loved him. What did they do for him? What does it say? I mean, they would have given them their eyes if they could, it says. I mean, you would have plucked your eyes out and given them. I mean, that, that's how much they had fallen in love with Paul. And Paul had fallen in love with them. He spent all of his time, you know, proclaiming Jesus to them, telling them the truth, it says. Uh, they, they treated him in return like he was an angel or even like he was Christ Jesus himself. So notice, what did the gospel produce in Galatia yeah, among these pagans? It produced a community of genuine Concern for other people. Not selfishness, but concern. Sacrifice. One to another. When the false teachers came in, something else happened. Verse 17. Those people, he says, are zealous to win you over, but for no good. You see the difference? When I came, it was to help you, and you loved me in return, and you would have even plucked your eyes out because we, we had this relationship forged by grace. But now... These false teachers are coming not to help you, but to win you. What's the difference between helping someone and trying to win them over? Sales. It, it sounds like sales, doesn't it? Which is exactly, I think, what you're supposed to think. 
It's like they're salesmen, traveling salesmen, trying to gain a following, trying to amass a crowd. Uh, Because Paul says they're trying to do it for no good. What they want, he says, is to alienate you from me and from us, the apostles, so that you may have zeal for them instead of us. So there's this sort of rivalry where they're trying to become the, the hot shots in the church. Paul says it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just so I'm with you, but my dear children, here's how I'm zealous for you. I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. See, see, see what Paul says? I'm, I'm zealous for you not to win you over so that you would make much of me. I'm zealous so that Jesus could fully be formed in your heart, so that you would have a real, genuine, lasting relationship with Jesus. I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed with you. I wish I could yell at you. I wish I could cry in front of you and weep in front of you. You see the difference there between Paul and the false teachers? This is how you tell a gospel culture in a church or in a person. Churches that are works-driven, are performance-driven, and therefore results-driven, and therefore, well, salesman-like. <laughs> hmm? You know? The bottom line, trying to, you know, hawk some religious wares on people. You see it on TV, but you see it in real life, too. Preachers who really are only out for themselves, or Christians who are really only out for themselves. Paul says, if you understand that you're adopted into the family of God, you cannot live that way. He's pleading with you, saying, remember what it was like when you first understood the gospel? Remember what it was like? You were ready to pluck your eyes out for me. I was ready to give my life up for you. And so what is all this thing now where you're trying to just follow around these false teachers like a bunch of groupies? With a celebrity. That's a totally different culture, isn't it? Gospel culture, performance. What we might call a worldly culture. Big difference, don't you think? Last thing. Uh, Look at verse 21 and following. Uh, The gospel gives us, the gospel life is a new way of relating to God's law. Okay, so here's the thing. Paul says you can't be saved by law, but that doesn't mean law is not important. You just got to know why God gave the law in the first place. And so it gives this, this gets even more complicated. Tonight's a very complicated chapter, by the way, if you haven't noticed already. I'm trying hard to make it clear, but it is complicated. In 21 through the end of the chapter, he basically goes into and makes a, into the Old Testament, makes an allegorical example of the place of God's law in people's lives. Uh, let me read it to you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? So he's saying, I know the law better than y'all. And you're saying you want to become a Christian, and you want to stay a Christian based on your obedience to the law? Have you never read the law? I've read the law. Here's what the law says. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. Remember that? Hagar, Sarah. Hagar had Ishmael. Sarah had Isaac. Ishmael was born through a human scheme where Abraham and Sarah were like, we're not having a baby, so why don't you take the servant Hagar and have a baby with her, and we'll call it ours. Human scheme. Isaac was born purely by the promise and miraculous power of God. And so Paul says in verse 24, these things can be taken figuratively. You can think, he says, you can basically think about that story as like a little miniature um, 
metaphor for the whole Christian life. There are two ways to relate to God, represented by the two mothers, Hagar and Sarah. There's a slavish way, and then there is a son way, son and father way. That's Sarah and then Hagar. And if you go this way, you're going to end up being like Ishmael. If you go this way, you're going to end up being like Isaac. Ishmael did not inherit a single thing from Abraham's inheritance because uh, Hagar and Ishmael left the family and went off on their own. They didn't get a single thing. Isaac got everything. Is Paul crazy by, by using the story this way? I don't think so because I think what he's doing is he's actually um, kind of trying to beat these false teachers at their own game. Uh, Jewish rabbis at the time loved allegories. We have all kinds of examples of this from back then, where they would take Old Testament stories like this and they would make a whole huge allegory out of it to try to teach a lesson. And Paul's saying, I can do the same thing. I can show you how it's done here. Sarah, Hagar, which one are you? Do you belong to Hagar? Do you try to live your life as if it were by works? Or do you belong to Sarah? Do you try to live as if it's based on the promise of God alone and his miracle-working power? You see, the law of God has to be understood lawfully. The law of God is not something that we can just throw out because we're saved by grace. I don't need the Ten Commandments. I don't need the Old Testament. That's trash. We need it desperately, but we've got to understand it lawfully. That is, we have to understand it in light of the gospel. We're not saved by it, but we are saved for it. We're not saved by obeying God, but we're saved in order that we might obey God. The problem of Ishmael and Hagar is they believed they could, Abraham and they believed they could do God's work in their own way by their own works. The wonderful thing about Isaac's birth was it just kind of shot out of the sky. But then after it shot out of the sky, what did God say to Abraham and Ishmael? Be circumcised and walk with me blamelessly. Walk with me blamelessly. Paul is showing you the Bible in a nutshell. You can either be a slave who says, I'll obey God because I have to because, yeah, there's the whole hell thing and I'm afraid of hell. Or, man, I really don't want God to, I want him to bless me in my life and not curse me, so I want to obey him so that my day goes well, my, my life goes well, so that bad things don't happen to me. That's the Hagar way. Or you can say, God... I know I'm completely wrecked and ruined. Only through Jesus, your son, can I be brought into your family. But now that you have brought me into your family, oh, what a joy to walk as blamelessly as I can by your grace. That I could listen to your law and do what you tell me to do because it honors you. It's the difference between having law first, grace second, or grace first, law second. You see that? This is what a gospel life or a gospel culture looks like. A church that believes the gospel truly from the heart, not just on paper, but from the heart, which is what we want to be, is a church that's going to relate to God in a really refreshingly direct way, a bold way, face-to-face. -face. None of this, you know, mysterious, magical, you know, um, Coke machine-style acting with God. We're also going to be a, a church that's not using one another. The church itself is not going to use you, and we're not going to use each other as church members. We're going to instead serve one another in love because we've been served by the Son of God. 
And we're also going to be, we also need to be a church that knows how to use God's law. We don't use it like a club to beat people over the head with, you're a sinner and we don't like you because we're good and you're bad, which is how some people have done it, Jew and Christian and all the rest. But instead, we use it as a delightful expression of God's character, which shows us how much we need Jesus first, drives us to Jesus, and then afterwards shows us how we can express our love for Jesus in the most perfect way because it's the way that Jesus himself gave. A church with a gospel culture is refreshingly direct with God, refreshingly sacrificial with each other, and refreshingly eager to obey from the heart. Do y'all want to be that? If you want to be that, start here. Go home and look slowly through this little article. I mean slowly. Read one line at a time about adoption and ask God to open your eyes to what you've been given through Christ. You're adopted. We are adopted into his family. Amen? Amen.